Our scripture reading this morning comes from the books of Titus and Timothy. So I'm going to start in Titus chapter 1, and we'll go to 1 Timothy 3. Titus 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then over to first Peter, or first Timothy, excuse me, chapter three, beginning in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Before we open the word this morning, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Would you join me? Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice to come to You as a Father, knowing that it is not in and of ourselves that we are Your children, for we were Your enemies. We were far from You by nature. We were lost, children of wrath by nature. But by grace we have been made children of God children of yours through faith in Jesus Christ, by union with the one who is your only beloved Son. And we rejoice that now you hear our prayers as the petitions of needy children to a good and wise Father. Father, we bless you for your truth. Your word is truth, and your truth is anchors us in a world that is so filled with contradictions. 
everywhere around us, people are attempting to persuade us of the truth. People are adamant that what they say is right and to be believed. And then the next person comes along with a contradictory statement. And Father, we would be without any sure and unmovable anchor in this world had you not revealed to us the true truth. And we are so thankful and humbled that we may know what is reality as you have created it to be. We do not boast in our knowledge, but we have nothing that we have not received from your gracious hand. If you gave us what we deserved, There would be no hope for me or for any of your people. But we thank you that you have made known to us the truth. And not only made it known to us in a general way, but that you have opened our eyes that we might see it and believe it. We praise you for your word. We ask that you would give us the insight to see what you have revealed and to rest our souls upon that unchanging truth. Father, today we are coming to you with our needs and our struggles, and in particular our struggles against sin. Sin within us still clinging on to us, and sin all around us that so vexes our souls. Lord, we are not angry and hateful with the world around us because we know that apart from grace, we are in the same exact position. Lord, we do pray that You would help those who are struggling hard with sin those who are tripped up so often by temptation, that you would come and by your word give hope to the one who is nearest to being without hope, that they would persevere, that they would labor against their sin in the confidence that what you have begun in them, you will continue. Lord, we pray for parents this morning who are teaching and training their children. Lord, all of our labor is in vain unless you build the house. So bless our words that they may not be mere words but that they might be the tools that your Spirit would use to bring awakening, quickening in the hearts of our kids, that they too would know the Lord Jesus Christ personally and in a saving way. We pray for our unconverted friends this morning, loved ones that we cherish, 
family members that we have great burdens for. Lord, for the sake of your love for us, we pray that you would extend that love, that you would bring saving conviction into the lives of those for whom we pray. We pray that you would yet be merciful with them, even now, even now, yet be merciful with them, even as you have been so merciful with us. We pray that you would magnify the greatness of your grace by saving the most hardened sinners doing such a transforming work in their minds and hearts that no one would question that this is a work of supernatural grace. We pray for our country today. Oh Lord, we are at a point of incredible turmoil and such sharp division, and we know that truth does divide into those who receive it and those who don't. Lord, we confess that those lines in the actual working out of policies in this country are are not always easy for us all to discern. Certain things are clear to us, and we pray that we would stand firmly for what we know to be true. And dear Lord, we pray that you would be gracious in the upcoming elections, in the appointment of Supreme Court justices, in the elections to local governments. Lord, you are the God who raises up rulers and puts them down. And it is only that. It is only your sovereign rule over all that allows us to go forward with peace and confidence. We trust you that you will bring about all things for the ultimate good of those who know you and love you. We rest in that assurance, O Lord. We pray for your grace today. In this hour, in this service, Lord, we need you. I pray that you would enable me to make your words clear to your people to remind them of what they have read and what they have known in a way that would be your guiding of their thinking. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts both now and throughout this week as we continue to open the Scriptures and read them day by day. We pray that you would not hide yourself from us when we come to you in prayer. 
that you would graciously condescend to meet us in our weakness and even in our penitence and breathe the breath of revival into our souls. Lord, our ongoing spiritual state is dependent on you as much as our regeneration, our new birth was dependent on you. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us this week with the word by the power of your spirit. We pray it in the name of your beloved son and our savior, Jesus. Amen. We are going to let the boys and the girls be dismissed. If you would like them to go, parents, it's up to you. with class for the kids up through age eight. And if you have uh, a copy of the scripture nearby and you want to look, we're going to make reference to Titus chapter 1, the passage I read a few minutes ago. Titus chapter 1 this morning. Earlier in the service, I read verse 5 to you. Verse 5, Paul tells Timothy... Excuse me, he tells Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I want to talk to you one more week this morning about the ministry of elders within the local church, the ministry of pastors in the assembly of God's people. And if uh, if you are visiting here uh, today for the first time, our normal practice is to, every Lord's Day, take another paragraph of Scripture and just work our way through book after book, paragraph after paragraph. But there are occasions when we pull out of that because there are things we need to talk about as a church family, issues that we need to think about for our own lives individually and for our life as a community, and this is one of those times where we are considering what our Lord has to say about the ministry of the local church, and in particular, the ministry of the church's leaders. There are three images, I mentioned last Lord's Day, three images in the New Testament of the church's spiritual leadership that each together, um, each one contributes something so that together they... um, they show us what spiritual leadership looks like in the context of the local church. One of those terms is the term that's found here in Titus, where he is told to appoint elders in every city. This term, elders, reminds us that the church's spiritual leadership should be characterized by wisdom and spiritual maturity. I mentioned last week that we grow spiritually at different rates from which we grow physically. So this doesn't necessarily equal an older person physically, though many times that is the case. But these men within the local church are men who are spiritually mature, not perfect by any means. In fact, I'm convinced of this that the longer you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and the closer that you draw to Him, the more keenly aware you are 
of your own failings and shortcomings. These men are not perfect, but they are leaders in spiritual maturity and wisdom. The Bible talks about them as being examples for the congregation. The second term that's used is the term overseers. The old version translated as bishops, overseers in the church. This reminds us that the church's spiritual leaders are both responsible for the flock that God has entrusted to them and accountable, they will give an account to the Lord for each of those sheep. This is a weighty responsibility and that terminology of being an overseer is one that no pastor should take lightly. And then the third term is the one I've I've hinted at, that is the term pastors or shepherds is the way it's usually translated in the scriptures. A spiritual leader is a shepherd in the church and that implies that he's responsible for the care and the feeding of the flock. The primary calling of a pastor is to take the Word of God and bring it to bear on the life of God's people. That is the essence of what he's called to do. And he does it publicly, and he does it privately. He does it with those who are searching for a deeper understanding of God, and he does it for those who are wandering away from God. But a pastor is a shepherd. He's one who cares and feeds the flock, cares for and feeds the flock. Now, in the text in front of you, verse number 5, you see that Paul instructed Titus to ordain elders, plural, in every city, in every town, singular. In Acts chapter 14, Paul tells uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are described as ordaining elders in every church. So every town that they went to, they witnessed, they preached the gospel. There was a little group of believers that gathered together that formed the nucleus of a congregation. And as that congregation began to grow, um, they would recognize uh, certain men as spiritually mature, really growing at a fast rate, and they would recognize and install those men as elders or pastors or overseers of those congregations. This was the usual custom for every New Testament church to have a plurality of pastors or elders. I suppose there were rare situations. In fact, that's very clear from the book of Acts. There were rare situations where churches may have had no pastor or only one pastor, maybe in a church planting situation or a a small church situation. Um, In fact, there are churches established and they come later and ordain elders. But it is the usual custom, I say, it's the usual custom of New Testament churches to have a plurality of spiritual leadership. Now, I want to introduce this morning's uh, topic by reminding you of the benefits or highlighting for you the benefits of plural eldership in a local church. And I want to give you four things to consider 
four ways that the Lord blesses his church through a plurality of leadership. The first is through complementary giftedness. That is, that as a church sees the Lord raise up in her midst more than one pastor to help bear the load, they realize that different pastors or different elders are gifted differently. So one pastor's primary gift rests in teaching, while another's is um, in, in exhortation and the ability to bring the word to bear in someone's life on a private level, or another in ruling and leading in the congregation. Each one of these pastors has certain deficiencies and certain strengths. And when there are, is a multiplicity of pastors, they encourage one another in their weaknesses and they help one another with their strengths so that the church results in a well-rounded ministry or is, is blessed by a well-rounded ministry. Number two, consider the benefit of the wise counsel that comes with a plurality of elders. The Bible tells us that in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Pastors who counsel together regarding sermon series that the church needs to hear, regarding topics that we need to hear in adult Bible study, pastoring and counseling issues, being able to talk together about philosophical direction and decisions that need to be made. The pastors, the, 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 the multiplicity of pastors helps to make up for gaps in the vision of any one single pastor so that the whole church benefits by the plural counsel that the pastors share. Thirdly, consider the increased pastoral ministry that takes place in a congregation with plur a plurality of elders. It's true, we've all found it out, that each one of us gets only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> Much as we wish we could change that at certain times, we have all found that we can only do so much. We've all also discovered that we each have a certain level of ability, a certain bandwidth, as it were, uh, to, to use in those waking hours. And it can only be given to certain things, not everything. Ideally, a pastor spends time with every member in his congregation. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, that's one of the most challenging and convicting things about being a pastor is that you find yourself sometimes having gone weeks and thinking, I don't know that I've talked to that person in much depth. Consider the blessing of having multiple pastors who share the responsibility of connecting on a personal level with you checking on your spiritual health, praying for you in earnest. I mean, really praying for you, spending time interceding for you, for your wife, for your children, for your family. Consider the blessing 
of increased pastoral ministry as pastors share these responsibilities on top of the preaching responsibility in all of the public services. And then finally, consider the mutual encouragement and accountability that comes in a plurality of church leadership. Mutual encouragement and accountability. The the, the burdens that can be shared within the pastoral community are deeper and more significant than a pastor might be able to share with another member of the congregation. When you share your deepest struggles with another brother or sister, with a pastor, for example, that pastor doesn't always feel the liberty, and I I think you recognize this, he doesn't always feel the liberty to unburden those struggles with others because that was given in confidence. But within the community of pastors, there is that ability to share those burdens in a way that highlights the needs that sometimes pastors may miss and and encourages one another in in the the needs that are out there. And then the shared joy uh, of of pastors fellowshipping together um, in in seeing what the Lord is doing. You know, I, I do get the great joy, and this is one of the greatest joys of being a pastor, is every once in a while hearing or seeing how God is really doing a mighty work in someone's life. I mean, the light bulb just clicked for them in some way. Or they've really kind of moved to a newer level in their exercise of their faith. Or they've really broken through in, a, in, in quite a big way some stronghold of sin that had held them for so long, and, or, or some ministry that some brother or sister selflessly performs for some other brother or sister. But, and when a pastor hears this, there is great joy, right? And that is good for, for all of us. But for pastors to, to hear about this together and to share these things together for their mutual encouragement is only beneficial for the congregation in the long run. These are some things to remember as we move forward. But this morning, what I really want you to focus on is, the, is this question, really a couple of questions that are related. One is this, how will we know whom the Lord is calling to pastor in our congregation? Or to say it another way, to flip the question around, how would I know if I'm being called by God to the ministry of eldership? And I think there are five indications that we can find in the Scriptures that I'd like to lay out for you this morning. Five indications of the call of God upon a man's life to enter into the work of pastoring, shepherding, and overseeing a congregation. The first is this. There is an internal call of God. An internal call. This is the Holy Spirit's leading of a person through His personal desires and his willingness, his personal willingness to pastor or to shepherd a group of people. First Timothy chapter 3, the passage we read this morning, you don't have to look back again at it, but the scripture says this, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There are two words in here that I'm highlighting. 
if anyone aspires to the office, he desires something that's good. There is an aspiration, a personal aspiration or desire for the work that God seems to be calling that man to do. There is a willingness, there is, a, there is an agreement in his soul that yes, this is what I am supposed to do. Now, there are plenty of people who have aspirations to be leaders. For some people, this is a driving passion. And this may be from the Lord, or it may be entirely a selfish ambition. And it behooves every person who has this desire and this aspiration for leadership in the congregation to ask himself whether or not this is a genuine call from God or whether this is just some sort of deep-seated need or desire for personal affirmation that is being fulfilled in pursuit of the pastorate. But this internal and I want to say it two ways, because desires are stronger or lesser, right? And you can talk about desires that are aspirations, and you can talk about desires that are, um, you might just say, a sense of willingness. But there is in that man a desire or willingness. This, this um, internal call of God may come early in a man's life, as apparently it did with Timothy when Paul recognized within him the call of God. Young people, uh, if you have a desire to proclaim the Word of God, to make God known, and particularly to make the Word of God known to others, that I would encourage you in that. That is a noble thing, the Bible says. I want to encourage you to express that desire to a pastor, to express that desire to the Lord. And if the church continues to affirm and confirm that desire, to prepare, to prepare yourself for a ministry of pastoring, whether that means seminary in the future down the road or whether it means um, some sort of theological study on your own within the context in which you find yourself, this is part of the internal call of God, that desire that God puts in a man's heart to love the people of God and to make the Word of God known to them. But there is secondly this uh, evidence of the call of God to be a pastor, and that is the, an external call. Not internal, but external this is the desire, not of the person called, but of the people who are doing the calling on behalf of the Lord. That is the church. This is the desire and the call of the church, the Christian community. <clears throat> Western American society is very individualistic. Um, in contrast to many other societies, there's good and bad with that. Um, but because of that, sometimes the call of God to 
eldership or pastorate, the call is viewed almost exclusively as a subjective experience, that inner voice in my heart. And I just know that that's what I'm supposed to do. This is not the full picture that the Bible gives regarding the call of God to the pastorate. There is, in addition to that inner desire, there is an outer voice. And that outer voice comes through the church and the church's leadership. Um, Look at Acts chapter 13, if you want to flip over there for a moment. We'll look at the first few verses here. Acts 13, um, the church in Antioch is gathered together. And we read of the call of God to the work of the Word and the work of pastoring and particularly evangelism and missions here in chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of Acts. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets or preachers and teachers, and then Luke names them. There was Barnabas, we know from the book of Acts, very well known, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Of course, Saul, we know, became Paul later on. So there's these five men, these five preachers and teachers within the local church in Antioch. And it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice what's going on in the text. That it's the pastors who are giving the call, sending these men out in connection and with the affirmation of the whole congregation. You see this later in chapter 14. It's very clear because when Paul and Barnabas come back, they give account to the whole congregation. So here's pastoral and congregational um, recognition of what seems to be already an internal call in the hearts of Paul and Barnabas but there is this external confirmation that comes about through prayer by the leaders of the church and the assent of the whole congregation. Both of these things are important elements of the call to eldership. There is a desire or a willingness in the heart of a man to shepherd, to take on the responsibility for the flock, and there is the recognition among the people of God and among the leadership that this person is indeed called, and they voice that call and send that person out into the work. Now, what I've found, uh, I think, in the Scripture is that often the internal call comes before the external call. For example, in this text, it says that Um, that the Lord spoke to the elders of the church or the pastors and the teachers of the church and he said, set these men apart for the work to which I have called them as if that's already a, a desire that they've had in their hearts and the Lord is calling them now externally. But there is nothing in Scripture that requires that the internal call come first in terms of the way someone experiences it. In fact, often in history, we've seen that the church has called a man to the office of elder 
pastor or overseer, and only then has the man recognized that this is, in fact, the call of God on his life. In 1546, John Knox, well-known reformer. John Knox, in, in 1546, was an academic and religious tutor, and he was already being characterized by a boldness in the gospel in contradiction to um, the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And the church gained notice of him. And one day, the chaplain of the place where he was, John Ruff, spent, uh, he, he, he spoke to the gathered church there um, about the Protestant doctrine of a church's election of its own ministers. And he said in that service, we believe that God is calling John Knox to the ministry of the pastorate. And he said, is that what you say, church, congregation? And the congregation affirmed, yes, this is exactly what we say. We believe that God is calling Knox into that the ministry of the pastorate. And Knox broke down in tears. He ran out of the room and he shut himself up in his own room because he was so in awe of such a calling and reluctant to move forward in it. But in time it became clear that this was, in fact, the will of God on his life. And history tells the tale of the, the impact that Knox and his ministry made for the Protestant Reformation. More recently, in 1890, in Dallas, Texas, there was a layman and Sunday school teacher named George W. Truitt. And Truitt was teaching at First Baptist in Dallas, and as he taught, it was just clear to everybody, this man is gifted by the Lord uh, to, to grapple with the Scriptures and to communicate the Word. And when the pastor was gone from the pulpit, Truitt was often called to fill the pulpit and to preach. And people would tell him, you know, you should be a preacher. And he would say, no, no, you know, I, I don't think that that's what I'm supposed to do. I, I think God wants me to be a lawyer. And so this continued on until one Saturday evening church meeting. And an older deacon stood up in the congregational meeting and said, sometimes God calls us to do unusual things. And he said, I believe that it would be the will of God, and I think we've all sensed it, that God wants George Truett to be a pastor. And he said, I move that we ordain him. And the church said, Amen. And Truett said, give me six months to think about it. And they said, we're not going to give you six hours to think about it. You're going to be ordained because God is calling you into the ministry. Later, he did begin to recognize that this was, in fact, this was, in fact, the work of God. The Lord uses both that the internal desire or sometimes just a mere willingness and the external call, the recognition that comes from the people of God to place a man into the ministry that God has chosen for him. And in the end, if a man is called, there will be both that internal and external confirmation that this is something that God wants for him. And 
Let me go on to a third indication of who it is that the Lord is choosing to pastor and shepherd us, and that is His providence. His providence. This is true because it is God and God alone who directs men into ministry. I should say God ultimately, He does so through His church, He does so through a man's desires, but it is God. And providence is part of the way that God puts a man into ministry and directs him into ministry. I want to give you an example. All right, In Acts chapter 16, Paul, and by now not Barnabas, but Silas, are again on another missionary journey. And they have a desire to bring the gospel into Asia. Asia is the westernmost part of what we call today Turkey. And that's where they wanted to go. And they, the Bible says this, when they, this is Acts chapter 16, verse 6, when they, that is Paul and Silas, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak in Asia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. So this is probably northern part of Turkey. They wanted to go there, but... The Bible says that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, excuse me, did not allow them to. And so, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And of course, there in Troas, you remember that Paul had the vision that God gave him of a man calling for help over in Macedonia, in Greece. And so, Paul eventually made his way into Greece. What's going on here? It seems, well, I'll say this, first of all. We don't know how the Spirit of Jesus directed and prohibited Paul and his team from going in the directions that they intended to go. It seems that the visions that he got were quite extraordinary, that this is not God's normal means of leading him, but normally God led him through providence through providential, divine guiding of his circumstances. This seems to be what Paul himself implies about that situation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, a door was opened for me down in Troas. Obviously, the doors are shut other places in some way that we don't fully understand. But the Lord in His providence was redirecting the Apostle Paul to be exactly where he wanted him to be. But then, when he got to Troas, the fact that Titus was not able to join him in Troas, he says, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that because Titus was not able to join him in Troas, he went on to Macedonia. Now, of course, that's a different explanation than we read earlier, how that he saw this vision. So God was using the vision clearly, but also he was using his circumstances. He was using his providential guidance of the doors of opportunity as he was opening and closing them. Because a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And of course, the open door of opportunity doesn't always mean that something's easy. 
He, in fact, he says, and there are many adversaries in the way. But nevertheless, God has providentially made a way for me here, and so this is where I'm going to minister. It is God himself who directs men into ministry through the providential opening and closing of opportunities. You know, so there's a a young man who's pastoring a small congregation. He says, I believe God wants me to serve this church in full-time ministry, fully supported ministry. And the church is 12 people and five of them are adults. Right? So what is, this is part of God's providential leading, right? God was, when God wants him in full-time ministry, God will make a way for that to be so. Or a man who says, you know, I wanted to be a pastor and I don't feel like I can be fulfilled unless I am. And the question, one of the questions that that person should ask himself is, has God made me into a pastor? Has he opened the door? Has he providentially arranged that that opportunity be open to me? Has he given me a call, an external call, as well as an internal desire? And if not, then I can rest content until he does, because it is his work, not mine. A man doesn't put himself into ministry. God does. And God is more than able to bring about the recognition of your pastor and your church if you are called to the ministry of eldership. God is more than able to direct your circumstances and to open the door because he's the God of all providence. Number four, there is this. This indication that God is calling a man into the ministry of eldership and that is giftedness. God gifts him with the gifts spiritual gifts necessary for the kind of work that God is calling him to. And those gifts are recognized by the assembled church. First Timothy chapter 4, again, if you want to flip over there this morning, First Timothy chapter 4, page 992, Paul is writing to young Timothy, a young elder, <laughs> if that's not a, uh, a contradiction in terms, right? A young elder or at least a man who was an elder in training, as it were. Later, he would pastor in Ephesus. And Paul says to him, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you or confirmed in you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things, that is, Exercise your giftedness and immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Pastors, friends, are gifted by Christ himself and then as gifted individuals are given into his church. These, this is the work of the Lord Jesus who gifts his church with gifted men Men who bear the gifts of teaching and ruling and exhortation and wisdom and hospitality. And not every pastor is gifted in every one of these gifts with the same measure. Not every pastor is gifted overall in the same measure as every other pastor. 
But these men are gifted. And their gifts are recognized by the church, not just by two or three or four people who said, you know, we appreciate your ministry. But here he says, exercise your gifts so that all may see your progress. The end of verse 15. The church itself recognizes the gifted men that God has raised up. And so here's been my prayer. Here's my prayer for us as we move forward. That it will become obvious to most all of us that there are one or two or three men that God himself has gifted to be our pastors. Men who are effective with the word, whose care for us is obvious, and whose wisdom is helpful and guiding for us. It is my prayer that the gifts that Christ has given to us will become apparent. And then finally, there is this indication that a man meets the qualifications that God outlines in the scriptures. And a man is examined and proven to be a man who meets these qualifications. If God is calling a man as an elder, then he is qualified according to the biblical mandates found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. What are those? Very quickly this morning. The Bible tells us that a Pastor should be, first of all, above reproach. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus chapter 1. Above reproach. This is kind of a summary qualification or a summary characteristic that helps us to think about all of the rest of them. In other words, the man is not perfect, but he is giving evidence of real spiritual maturity and growth in these areas. The Greek term used here for reproach implies that nothing in this person's life gives a handle to hold on to, so to speak, for those who would reproach the name of Christ. He is above reproach. Secondly, he is to be the husband of one wife. That is, he's to be dedicated to his spouse. For who can be dedicated to the bride of Christ who is not dedicated to his own bride. This is a man who is not flirtatious, who's not overly familiar with those of the opposite sex, but he has a track record of marital faithfulness. And the assumption here is that most elders are married, although, of course, there were certainly unusual instances where there were unmarried elders, such as uh, Timothy, it seems, probably, and and the Apostle Paul himself, who established many churches as a single man. But in general, as the Lord calls a man who is a married man, he is to be the husband of one wife, dedicated solely and completely to her. Thirdly, he is to be a good husband and father, we find in Timothy and Titus. This is interesting, because sometimes people think, well, a pastor, he just needs to be a good preacher. Or uh, maybe he needs to be, you know, theologically astute. And all of those are essential. But it is no less his character as a leader in his home that is important than is his leadership in the assembled church. He says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive because 
how will someone know how to manage the household of God if he doesn't know how to manage his own church? So in other words, a pastor will not have children who are running wild. Fourthly, the pastor is described as a person who is sober-minded. This is not to say that he doesn't have fun, but that he is not light or frivolous. There is an earnestness, a seriousness to him about the things of the Lord. He's also described as a man who is self-controlled. Titus says it this way, he's not quick-tempered. Oh Lord, be gracious to us men. A pastor is not quick-tempered, but he's self-controlled. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's gentle and not quarrelsome. He is self-controlled. If a man is going to work together with other elders, then he must be a man who is not quarrelsome, but able to come to consensus. Next, he is a man who is respectable. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. He's orderly, he's decent, he's considerate. In another place, he says that he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. Also, it says that he must be hospitable. A pastor must be hospitable. This means he must be open to people because a pastor's ministry, after all, is people. And a pastor who refuses to open himself up to people, to open up his home, and to be engaged with those around him is no pastor at all. Then there is third, uh, whatever this is, I don't know the numbers here. He is to be a lover of good. That is a lover of the good of God's glory and the good of the church. In contrast, he's not to be, 1 Timothy 3.3, a lover of money. He's to love the church, to love good, to love truth, to love the word, not to love money, not to be in it for him, his own gain. He's not to be consumed with the material, not just to be a pastor so I don't have to work a regular job. He is to be upright. That is to be fair, to be equitable, to be known as a person who is equitable, equitable in judgment. He's supposed to be holy, Titus 1 verse 8. That is, consecrated to God and not living a life of sin and defilement. A holy person. Not holy in the sense that he's come to sinless perfection, but actively and earnestly pursuing the righteousness of God in his actual experience. And then he is to be spiritually mature, 1 Timothy 3 Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, Paul says to Timothy, lest he be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Again, I've known fairly young Christians who have grown incredibly fast, like lightning speed over the course of two or three or four years. But a pastor should not be a man who is spiritually immature, a recent convert, ignorant in the word. And finally, he must be Able to teach. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. Titus says it this way. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Why is this important? Again, because a pastor's authority is a 
derived authority. His authority is not inherent in himself or even in his office per se. It is inherent in the word. And his authority rests in his ability to make the word clear. I was reading um, some comments by John Calvin um, earlier this morning, in fact, who, who, who was just arguing that the best theologian is not the man who can come up with the most innovative ideas, but he's the man who at the end of the day presents the most, he presents the argument from the word of God with the greatest clarity. The word of God has to win every time. So he needs to be able to teach. Christ leads his people by his spirit through his word that is preached and taught by the elders. So, these, I think, are the marks. These are the, the, the indications of a man who is called by God to the office of elder or pastor or overseer. So where do we go from here? Let me wrap it up this way. This fall, I plan to begin a, um, I don't know what quite to call it yet, uh, a gathering of men, uh, a faithful men class. Or maybe the best way to say it is kind of a leadership cohort or a leadership development cohort. And there are two designs that I have in mind in doing this. Number one is to develop men in this congregation to be leaders in their home and in the church, teachers of Sunday school and adult Bible study, A while back, I was working on memorizing 2 Timothy chapter 2, and right up front, you're hit with this verse. Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will, in turn, be able to teach others also. And the conviction to do just that has never left me unbothered since then. This, I hope, will be a way um, of fulfilling that command. As such, I would anticipate having multiple cohorts as the years go by to prepare and train men for deeper ministry in Sunday school classes in their homes as they lead their families. But secondly, I des- my intent in this gathering is to, for this to become a seedbed from which God might grow men into eldership in our church. From this first cohort, even perhaps, the Lord would raise up one or two or even three elders. And so... Um, beginning next Lord's Day, next Sunday, and running probably on for about three weeks, I would like it to, to open it up to members of the church to make recommendations to me uh, for men that you believe uh, could really benefit from a leadership class, and more than that, who you could look to as leaders potential leaders in this church and for sure men who could be greater leaders in their homes 
And uh, this is not to nominate, but to make recommendations. I'm going to have some cards that will be in the Welcome Center. And we may do it by email as well. And I'm just going to ask you to put on there your name and the name of the person that you're nominating, or not nominating, but the name of the person that you would recommend, and then why you would recommend them. And then my plan is to begin to get together with these men, Lord willing, once a week, to work out a time around all of the various schedules where we can sit down and for an hour or two go through the word together, go through some books together that we can go through and eventually, as the Lord leads, if he raises up some of these men to be uh, recognized as elders here, that they would go through a period of doctrinal examination of preaching and teaching opportunities in our midst that we would get a chance to observe their lives. And then those proven and gifted teachers, we would recognize and affirm the call of God upon their lives to be elders in our congregation. That's my hope and prayer. And I'm asking you, church members, to join with me in praying for that and thinking about that and seeing what the Lord will do for us. In closing, I want to remind you of that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says that it is the ascended Lord Jesus who equips his church with just the right people that she needs for her teaching, for her encouragement, for her training, for the evangelism that takes place in and through the local church. So we're looking ultimately to our Lord, to our Lord to lead and guide us, to direct us in the days to come. And I hope you'll be seeking his face. Would you pray with me now? Oh Lord, this is our earnest prayer that you would raise up other pastors for this congregation. Lord, we pray that you would send men to us that you have gifted and called or that you would give us the recognition of men in this assembly already who you are calling into this work. Lord, we also want to ask you that you would work in them internally a willingness to heed that call a willingness to take on the incredible responsibility of loving, shepherding, teaching, and leading this congregation. Lord, we pray that you would affirm in their hearts and in our midst, affirm what what you are doing. That we would have the mind of Christ Lord, we, we, we know that we cannot expect the mind of Christ if our hearts are far from you. And so we pray this morning that you would quicken and revive us, that we may be in the right place to recognize what you're doing. Lord, deliver us from coldness and deadness and sin. Give us wisdom 
as we wait upon you. I pray particularly that you'd give me wisdom as I invite these men and that you would give our congregation wisdom as they make recommendations to me. And Lord, we know that this church is far bigger than than me or any individual. And we long that it would be the case that this church would be strong and healthy long after any time when I may be gone or any individual in the congregation may be gone. We pray that you would give us a good core of spiritually minded men to lead and direct us as we move forward. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.